Mike, thank you very much for coming on the show and welcome to the cage. <laughs> nice. Glad to be here. Good. Um, obviously, uh, you have had a very illustrious career and now you're doing some amazing work with uh, Deliver Fund. Um, but I want to take it right back to the beginning to start off with. What inspired you to join the armed forces? Um, so for me, it actually started with... When I was eight years old, uh, my grandmother lived in Coronado, which is where the SEALs do their training, their basic BUDS training. And uh, as you drive down the uh, highway there, you'll see the obstacle course, you know, great big cargo nets, monkey bars, stump jumps, also all sorts of other stuff. To an eight-year-old kid, that looks like Shangri-La. I mean, that was like awesome. That's like the best playground in the world. Um, so that was really the first thing that kind of got me into it. I'm like, holy crap, this is really cool. And then, uh, you know, got to see, they saw him running on the, on the beach. And as, as a kid, that looked pretty cool. So I started doing a little bit of research, um, found out what the seals were. And I was like, sold. I, I'm, I'm in a hundred percent. Um, and so, uh, when I was 16, I actually tried to join the military and, uh, the recruiter laughed at me and said, Hey, hey bud, no way. Um, first off, you got a complete high school. Secondly, you're a minor, and so you have to have your parents' consent, and I can't talk to you until you're 17. So when I, uh, I turned 17, and the day after that, uh, my dad came home from work, and the recruiter was sitting on the couch with me. Um, and I was like, hey, here's what I want to do. <laughs> and uh, begrudgingly signed the papers, and then I was off to the races. Um, how, how does it work with the Navy SEALs? Because obviously... Uh, there's been plenty of films and TV shows that depict the Navy SEALs. Is it that you go straight into it or do you have to have a contract with another branch, serve a bit of time and then try out for the SEALs? So the process has evolved over the course of time. Um, there, there have been various special programs that people could sign a contract for. You know, they go into boot camp and they get, a, you know, three opportunities to go, and, you know, special, special training, that sort of thing. The, the normal process, though, is you join the Navy, you choose a, uh, a rating, an MOS, a, a job identifier, and uh, you go to that particular A school after you get out of boot camp. Um, and then you take the screening test for BUDS, um, both physical and medical. And assuming you, you do well enough on the physical and there's no medical issues, you apply for orders to BUDS and then you get orders to BUDS. Um, and then that's, that's how it goes. So, I mean, we, the SEALs typically take very, very young people. Um, I think I was, I mean, I turned 18 in boot camp. So I got to BUDS when I was 18 years old. Um, very, very few people, you know, you can get into your mid twenties. Um, yeah, I think the age cutoff is about 28 that you have to start. Um, there's not a whole lot of people coming in at, at that age level though. What was the sort of age range of the, the candidates that were there when, when you were going through BUDS? When I was there, it, it was a lot of 18 to 20, 
two-year-olds. You might have had a couple 23-year-olds, guys who'd come out of the college, some of the, uh, some of the officers sort of thing. Um, maybe a couple of people from the fleet who were in there at 24, 25-ish. And obviously going through the budge training itself, you, you form a bond with these men like no other. How did it affect you as you start seeing those people go to the bell and ringing the bell and putting the helmet on the ground? <laughs> so um, you, you do see that. Um, you do form those bonds. Um, a lot of the people kind of quit in the very first phase of training. Um, and there, you know, there can be, you know, 180 people in your class at that point. Um, so you don't have a lot of really close bonding with some of those people. Um, you know, you're kind of, at least for me, I was just kind of trying to survive. Um, so I wasn't really focused on, on that at that point. I will say that, you know, the intensity doesn't decrease throughout training. So um, everybody's got their point where they think about quitting. Anybody who tells you otherwise is full of crap. Um, <clears throat> for me, it, I, I ended up getting rolled back from medical injuries. Um, and while I was rolled back is where I had my darkest times. Um, yeah. It became like, holy smokes you know, this has really sucked up to this point and I've still got all this way to go. And then you're seeing some of your friends go ahead of you and, and they're moving on and you're just like, God dang, do I really want to do this? Um, but then you just, you just find whatever your mechanism is, whether it's an internal thing, whether it's talking with somebody else to talk you out of it, that sort of thing to, to prevent it. What would you say would have been the the biggest struggle during Buds? Is it the physical aspect or the mental strength that you have to have to, to push through some of the challenges? Categorically, it's the mental strength. Um, having that resilience, um, the, the intestinal fortitude component of it, the willingness to get back up when you're knocked down every single time. And I say that because we had some guys who were absolutely stunned. I mean, we're talking like football players, um, guys who, who literally looked like bodybuilders. They were yoked. Um, they could run a 630 mile, hold it over four plus miles. They were decent swimmers. Um, and then they went away. Um, and then you have, you know, guys who, yeah, they, they can make the standards, um, but they get put in the goon squads, for instance, which is as you're doing a, a conditioning run, if you come in behind a certain cutoff, you go to a goon squad, which is basically extra attention. So you're, running, doing berm runs, you're running into the ocean, getting wet and sandy, coming back, doing, you know, all sorts of silly, uh, silly games. But uh, those are the people that you're going to probably see make it through because they are constantly facing that adversity. And I say that because you face that adversity up to hell week, right? The infamous hell week where everybody stays up late. Well, when you have faced all those goon squads up to that point, hell week, I'm not going to say it's easy by any stretch, but to a degree, okay, yeah, I've been here. I've done this. I've sucked it for, for this long. Where some of the other guys who, you know, by virtue of their physical ability, you know, they're able to run fast, swim fast. They're, you know, they are studs. Um, this is the first time they're really being challenged. And it's like a wake-up call for them. And that's where, that's where I say that mental resilience is absolutely key. Wow. So you just you spoke about Hell Week, and obviously we we've heard about it, as I say, through films, through TV series. Are you able to share what Hell Week is, or is it a bit of a surprise for the the recruits going through buds? Um, 
I think that, you know, it has been well documented. Um, you know, it's no secret. I mean, you, you can go out to out to the strand and you can watch the candidates when a hell week's going on. Um, so, I mean, it is essentially five days of nonstop activity. Um, you might be afforded an opportunity to sleep, I don't know, maybe three hours somewhere in the middle, like Wednesday night. Um, but other than that, it's 24 hours. You're going, going, going. Um, constant activity, paddling your boats, doing runs, doing swims, um, playing with the logs, just getting tortured in the surf, um, uh, all sorts of those types of activities. Um, and then, you know, at, at the end, yeah, you, you are, you are secured, um, and you, you move on with training. Um, I will say that, that that couple hours of sleep in the middle is probably one of the worst tortures there is because by that point, you're so exhausted. You lay down, you kick off your boots, and uh, you know your feet are going to swell. And then when you're woken up, you have to put those back on. Um, and it, it's, it's tough waking up after that. So, What was it like? When you finally finished Buds, what was the, the feeling for you finishing all that testing, all that mental and physical testing that you went through? What was the feelings like for you? Oh, you're on top of the world. I mean, you you, you come out of there, you're, you're arguably in the best shape of your life. Um, you know that you've just made it through what is probably the, the, the military's hardest physical and mental training. Um, over a prolonged period of time, you know. Um, so you're you're literally on top of the world, probably coming out a little bit too arrogant, um, mm -hmm. but the teams have a way of fixing that. Um, you know, which by the time you get through SQT, which is kind of the next phase of, of training, and then you get to your team, um, you realize that you are, in fact, just the bacterial scum at the bottom of the toilet, um, and you have no standing. Um, you know, that is, that is beat into you. Um, just for the humility's sake, because uh, I, I don't know if most people know this, but if you look at the seal's trident, um, you'll see that it's an eagle and its head is bowed. Um, whereas most times in the U.S., when you look at an insignia with an eagle, the head is up. Um, so the reason for that head being bowed is because it's it's a sign of humility, right? Um, and that's something that we we can't really lose and we can't afford because. Um, Frankly, without being humble, you're just an arrogant ass. Um. <laughs> I, I never noticed that. I've got it down there on my SEAL Team 6 uh, logo down there, so I'll have a look at that later and check that out. Um, so once you finish the training, do you go to uh, a like a, a green a green team for where you get picked for each um, SEAL Team? Yeah. No, uh, sort of. So you graduate buds where you're, you know, you come out of there with just enough knowledge to be dangerous to yourself and others. Um, so then you get a SEAL qualification training, which is an additional three and a half to four months where you actually start to learn really military tactics, um, sort of the, the very basic functions of the job as a SEAL. So you'll actually do more diving. You'll do more land navigation. You'll do more um immediate action drills. Um, you'll do some SR, you'll learn how to how to drive, you'll get, you know, you'll start doing your 
you'll get your free fall qualification so that you can do the air component. Um, so you start tying all of those in and you really start just kind of dialing it in so that when you show up to a team, um, you're actually able to be used. Um, and that was part of the evolution over, over the course of time. Um, it was a little bit of a different model when I went through. Um, this is arguably a better model because you're getting better qualified people in the door at a team um, right off the bat. And then yes, during, a, during, that com during that phase of training is when you, I believe you negotiate orders to whatever team you're gonna go to. You can say you negotiated orders, but at the end of the day, it's the needs of the Navy. So, you know. So it's, it's not the, the team itself that selects the candidate. It's you get placed there no matter what then? Um, to a degree, it, it is needs of the Navy. So, for instance, if, you know, SEAL Team 2 is getting ready to start up a, um, a basically a workup for a deployment off of a 24-month cycle, um, they may have, have need of bodies. Whereas, you know, at that point, maybe SEAL Team 4 is in the middle of um, a deployment or just getting ready to deploy. They're not going to be taking bodies because they can't effectively utilize them. So they try to program it out based on which team is where in their development cycle. And that goes, uh, I, I say SEAL Team 2. It could be SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 3 as well. It could, you know, East Coast or West Coast. So uh, taking the, the the teams, figuratively speaking, um, so one to six, um, obviously they're, they're split up again throughout throughout that team into what, squadrons or or platoons. So um, you, you'll be, it'll be broken out into um, basically uh, troops. So you a guy will be assigned to an individual platoon, and then there will be kind of two, two platoons to a troop. Um, so, you, you know, if there's three troops at a given team and they get, you know, nine new guys, well, then you're going to get essentially what it, whatever that math is. I think one, one platoon might get two and the other other platoons might get, get one new guy each. Um, but it, it really, it, it that's going to, that's going to change and be dependent on, you know, some of the experienced guys might be coming back in from shore duty or they might be coming in from training, that that sort of thing. So it, what the team try to do is get a balance of some new guys in there as well as some experienced guys so that you don't get a platoon of nothing but new guys. And then it's heavily weighted the other way. That way new guys get to experience from the older guys, um, that sort of stuff. So there's some sustainability going on. So once you're with that team, do you do you stay with that team, um, or do you or is there a chance for movement throughout the teams? Because uh, my understanding is each team has its own specialization in, in certain areas. If if that's right, do you do you stay with that certain specialization? So that we used to have that model where it was geographically oriented. Um, as an example, I I first checked into SEAL Team Four. And that was Latin America, so Central and South America, um, heavy focus on jungle warfare. Um, at the time, SEAL Team 2 was a winter warfare uh, team. So anything winter warfare would go basically towards SEAL Team 2. So think Norway, Sweden, Finland, all that good jazz. Um, on the West Coast, I think SEAL Team 3 was kind of a, a desert team, the Middle East, and SEAL Team 1 was kind of the Southeast Asia team. Uh, that, that changed uh, going into 2000 timeframe. 
And now every, every single team kind of deploys for a global um, presence. So it's based on the needs of, of the globe. Um, with respect to the question about moving between teams, the, the answer is yeah, you can, but your first team, you're going to be there for about five years. Um, so that way you really kind of get in there. You have some understanding. You are able to build your reputation and get those skills and then then move on from there. So if you if you left after five years, maybe you go to training for a couple of years and you kind of learn all that stuff. And then you're like, okay, you know what? I want to go back to a team. Maybe you go back to the same team. Maybe you go to a different team, you know. Maybe you just decide you want to go to a, a unit and, and do something over overseas at a forward deployed unit um, type thing. So there's there's a lot of different options at that point. But when you first get in, yeah, you're kind of you're kind of you're there for five years, unless you screw up, in which case they'll shit can you. <laughs> so um, obviously over that five year period, you you must build some incredibly strong bonds with that team. Um, Definitely with the guys. Uh, just just a random question. Obviously, you say you could move after those five years. How how are you treated after those five years going to another team? Are you, are you still treated like the new guy because of that team atmosphere? Um, it's going to be based solely in large part on your reputation. Um, you know, you you develop a reputation. Um, you're a good operator. Um, you know you. You, you treat your mates with respect, um, that that will carry forward um, and you will be welcomed much more readily. There will always be a little bit of skepticism because if guys haven't worked with you before, you know, okay, hey, yeah, he's got a good rep, but, you know, is is he a dick? I mean, we, you know, that sort of stuff. But um, by and large, it's going to be very, very heavily based on your reputation as to how well you are easily assimilated into that team. Okay, so uh, going back to your uh, first five years with your uh, original team, I believe you said SEAL Team 4? Yes. Uh, and you're saying that was mainly uh, Latin South America? Yeah. Um, how did you feel going on your first deployment with the team? Oh, I, I was, uh, personally, I was pretty scared because uh, I had I had some very senior dudes in my first platoon. Um, and... It was a little bit different back then. Um, you know, when I checked into SEAL Team 4, I didn't have a Trident. I had to earn that going through the oral boards that we had. It was a different process. Um, now guys are checking into the teams. They're already awarded their Tridents um, upon graduation of SQT. So um, that component right there is a little bit of a different dynamic because you're coming in, you've already got the insignia. You're, you're To a degree, you're already made that way um, as opposed to when I came in yeah you you had to earn it every single day um, and then as a new guy you were basically told you knew nothing and you were there to there to learn um, so every day was a learning process um, but it was challenging it was challenging so um, going through the, the Latin American obviously were you going against drug cartels uh, perhaps uh, trafficking across the border? So back then, I mean, we're talking the, the mid to late 90s at that point. Um, no, it was predominantly a joint combined exercises for training, kind of foreign internal defense, uh, military training teams type of things. There wasn't a lot of kind of 
active participation in operations against one particular adversary. Um, you know, the U.S. had had a policy, and still to a degree does. Um, you know, specific to the cartels back then. Um, we might provide advisement um, and, and training to the the host nation units that were going against those, but wouldn't go in the field with them um, back then. So, did you ever make it across to to the Middle East? Then uh, you were saying that obviously later on the teams progressed and they were moving more globally instead of. Uh, areas of responsibility. So at uh, any point, did you manage to get across uh, to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, my, my career trajectory, I started off at SEAL Team 4, then I went over to our special boat unit headquarters. Um, at the time, I was a medic, so I was doing predominantly medical stuff there. Then I went down to Fort Bragg and finished up our 18 Delta course, uh, which is kind of advanced medicine. Then I went to SEAL Team 8, then to SEAL Team 10. Um, then I did some time up north at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency and finished out my career at, at the time it was called Support Activity 2. Now I think it's Special Reconnaissance Team 2. Um, and the answer is, yeah. I mean, I I went to Afghanistan in, beginning in 2003 and then uh, did a brief stint in Iraq in 2004 with uh, DTRA and then did three more deployments to Iraq um, when I was at now SRT2, um, and one more deployment to Afghanistan there as well, and then a deployment to Kosovo um, right right after 9-11 um, happened. Wow. How did you feel being deployed to Kosovo um, after 9-11 with, with everything being focused towards the Middle East where you've just been? How did you feel? being posted almost in the opposite direction so initially it was uh it was a challenge it kind of felt like maybe we're being sidelined um but it ended up being an, an incredible opportunity um because we were able to work with some of our intelligence partners to um to find and address some of the uh the folks that were not necessarily al-qaeda tied but were tied to either war crimes or tied to um, to Al Qaeda that were operating outside of those specific theaters of Afghanistan, Pakistan area. Um, so after your Kosovo deployment, where did you go after that? Did you manage to head over to the Middle East? Um, so at that point, then uh, we got back from that. That was at SEAL Team Eight. Then I. Uh, Went over and was one of the plank owners at SEAL Team 10. Um, while at SEAL Team 10, I um, was afforded the opportunity to do an augmentation with um, our, our development group to Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, and so did that and then uh, came back. And then, I, like I said, I went up to our Defense Threat Reduction Agency where I was doing vulnerability assessments. Some of those were overseas in Iraq for some of the bases over there, um, and then came to finished out at SRT2 working there. Obviously, being able to go to Afghanistan, then do you and like you said, being in Kosovo, dealing with people that not might not have been directly involved with Al Qaeda, but in a roundabout fashion, perhaps with funding. Uh, do you feel that? Um, 
your your position in the military was was vindicated at that point that you served a purpose towards the memories of those people on 9-11? At the time, I don't think I felt a sense of vindication as much as a a sense of, okay, finally, I'm getting to apply the skills um, that I was provided and able to utilize them. Um, In hindsight, what I think that the Kosovo deployment in particular really kind of started me thinking about was uh, networks, looking at illicit networks as opposed to just, okay, hey, yeah, we're going to go get a bad guy. Um, that that one really was like, okay, wait a minute, there there's an interplay here. This guy is one, one piece of it, but it's going to disrupt networks, which is, you know, since that time has kind of been my, my, my focus and I guess passion in life which is those illicit networks. I find that quite interesting because that obviously um, sort of dispels the the Hollywood myth that SEAL team members are door kickers and pipe hitters. Obviously, you just you you're saying there that you almost had a penchant for the for the intelligence side, the espionage side of of warfare. Um, I, I definitely had a a penchant for the intelligence and operations fusion. Um, because there, there's definitely that is going to be the better model as opposed to just hey Intel feeds ops um, that sort of thing. Um, that being said, look, so, some of the Hollywood stuff is true. I mean, <laughs> the world needs sixty gunners too, right? I mean, you need those big dumb animals. Um, they serve a purpose. You you do need people to go kick in the doors, um, and it and it's sexy and it's exciting, um, but. I, as a self-admitted nerd, yeah, I find more, I guess I find greater satisfaction out of mapping out those networks and then being able to disrupt a network as opposed to that very, very tactical focus. So um, obviously you had, you've had that tactical experience. You've, you've been boots on the ground in various locations. Were you able to... Um, compartmentalize everything that you've been through you be able to you know to put it into boxes and, and put it away uh, or was it something that you later come to terms with later on in life so are you talking more kind of along the lines of stuff that might cause pts um yeah um or pts or just um anything that may might have caused you uh, mental trauma and things that you've seen that, that you've been through through that boots on the ground element. Yeah, um, I, I don't know, maybe, to a degree, um, I, I think that it was just a matter of accepting that, hey, this is a job, we have to do our job. Um, I believe that it's for a good cause. Um, so with respect to some of this stuff, um, you know, no, I, I personally didn't feel like any any significant issues that needed to be compartmentalized um you know there are times when you know you might have a a, a memory you know something might trigger a memory you know, for instance would be you know at one point i was walking through my neighborhood and there, there was something burning it was probably somebody burning a, a pile of trash along with their leaves whatnot but um between kind of the way that the smoke was coming across the the street and just the smell I mean, it really was. It was like, holy crap! 
I'm back in Sadr City. I mean, it was just like, oh yeah, hey, I've got this. Um, so, I mean, there, there are those moments. Um, yeah. you know, I, I don't know that that's PTS as much as kind of a, a deja vu or just a, something that triggers a memory though. Yeah, that, that's, that's good. Again, um, you know, Dan, th this is my experience too. That's yeah, not to yeah. say that other people don't don't have that um, or or have different experiences. And you know, I'm I'm not going to by any means denigrate um, their service or you know or them as people because they have different experiences or um, different effects from from different traumas. You know. No, absolutely. It's um, obviously for me. Each of these interviews that I've been doing, it's it's that person's experience of their military career. So obviously, every single one of them so far has been individual and unique. So no, I I I don't think that at all. So yeah. Um, obviously, uh, you you said you were moving into the intelligence. Did that become more of your career path in the military then? Um, so yeah, um, really when I went up to Detroit, I started looking at things and having access to more intelligence, um, than I did previously. Um, and then when I went back down to what's now SRT2, really we were focused on that intelligence operations fusion, that targeting, um, combining multiple forms of intelligence, um, into a targeting cycle. Um, really where I started working with multiple different intelligence agencies um, and looking at how what, how we might leverage those different strengths, um, different aspects to prosecute targets and, and disrupt networks. Uh, that does, uh, sounds slightly more fun. So I would imagine uh, you're probably not as kitted out for this role as you were perhaps uh, being boots on the ground um is this more sort of a, a civvy clothed environment so it was a both end um at the end of the day i i'm still i was still a seal so i still had an obligation to be able to fulfill my duties as a seal as a tactical level seal kicking indoors um so i still had all my kit um, you know, I'm looking at some of the stuff in the background there. All of it's very, very familiar to me. Um, different, multiple different patterns. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was, then it was the also and type thing. So you had all of this, but then, and yes, there was some civilian, much, much more civilian clothing or, um, depending on what we were doing, you know, potentially it might look better if we were utilizing a different uniform. So, you know. Maybe it was better if I wore, you know, Army ACUs for a particular reason, um, as opposed to civilian clothes, because that might be kind of a offsetting. Why is this civilian guy hanging out with these Army dudes? Okay, fine, I'll put on an Army uniform kind of thing. So it, it, it was very much more flexible, um, yeah. you know, as opposed to kind of doing nighttime raids. The preponderance of the work was during the day, you know, going out into town, to meet people, to look at different things, um, that sort of thing. So obviously going to um, your your door kicking kit, um, would this would have this been the era of uh, area of responsibility uniform? So you've got ARI one, AOR two. No, no, by this point we're, you know, we're we're a global force. So it is deploying for for purpose um, at kind of the 
the combatant commanders needs. So yes, at that point, a lot of the forces were being committed to Iraq and or Afghanistan. Um, <clears throat> but there were there was still a need for uh, the European com combatant commander to have forces um, for a commanders in extremist force. So we would still deploy a team to, or, or at least a component of a team to U European theater. Um, you know, at that point, there wasn't as much focus on Latin America. So yeah, I mean, our reserve team would kind of, our reservists would go down and do these military training team type of um, requirements that, that Southcom had. So um, I'm presuming that your your kit was perhaps uh, cry precision, uh, op, op score, um, uh, predominantly cry, predominantly cry. Yeah. Um, so would that have been the uh, the cry airframe lid? Um, at that point, we had not fully fully absorbed those. So that would have been more, more the old-fashioned Mitch 2000 so, helmet. So, yeah, so a lot of them were, were, the, were the Mitch at that point. There was still kind of a transition on, on the early phases there. That's in, in, interesting. Um, always been fascinated uh, with with kit itself. So what, what boots, uh, just out of interest, because I've never known what brand boots the, uh, the SEALs had. So um, got to be honest, I don't even remember what boots I had. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I know that I, I use the standard desert boots sometime. Um, I couldn't tell you who, who makes those. They're just the generic issue ones. Um, you know, there, there were other times when, not not necessarily in Iraq, but prior to, you know, I would use Danners. Yeah. Um, some of the cold weather stuff, at one point I used uh, Timberline boots. So, um, but yeah, I'm just, to be honest, never really paid that close attention. Um. that's all right um so obviously you'd gone into this uh intelligence side uh of the seal teams working with um special operations uh gathering intelligence how did that pan out for you did you did you stay in that element for for the years to come for the rest of your service or was that just a, a fleeting moment in your career no no that took the the last five years of my career um and really kind of set me up for everything that that followed. Um, 2012, I ended up retiring after five years at that uh, unit. Um, and, and frankly, I mean, I, I had only been home 15 months out of those five years. Um, you know, my, my family I had a young son at the time, and the, the future course of my career was, yeah, we'll try to keep you home for a year, but then you're definitely going overseas unaccompanied for a year. Um, and I was like, you know what? I love the job. I love the, I love the people. Um, but I do have the, I do have to focus on, on my family, and that's not going to be sustainable. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I ended up retiring in 2012, um, and then I just moved into some contracting for government, um, different government agencies, um, private clients, um, that sort of stuff. Um, doing predominantly operations, not operations, but operational training, um, yeah. teaching people what I'd already learned. How did you feel uh, coming out of that team environment, leaving the Navy SEALs, uh, becoming a civilian? How did you feel at that moment in your life? Um, a little bit lost. 
Um, so I, I really, I felt like there's no need for this particular skill set home, homebound. Um, but I was fortunate in, in some of my contracts and in some of my consultant work to work with a lot of the people I had worked with previously with people with similar backgrounds. Um, but yeah, it, it was a huge, huge shift. Um, you know, it's one of those things when, when you're in the tribe, you're in the tribe, but when you're out, that door's closed and it gets cold outside. Um, and you have to be able to, to accept and adapt to that cold. Um, you know, and, and eventually you do. Some guys, unfortunately don't. Um, I was one of the fortunate ones. I, I did. Um, you know, you have, but you have to have that adaptability because, you know, when you're out, you're out. You're not, you're not in the team room anymore, you know? Exactly. So uh, going into the contracting work, obviously that's uh, a very mix and match of civilian meets military. Did that help mm -hmm. you sort of transition from the military to civilian life? I think it did, um, simply by virtue of exposure. So, um, you know, if, I, if I'd just been a door kicker my entire life, I would have had that experience to draw from. Um, but because of my experience with the, the intelligence communities, the State Department, um, you know, you have to learn how to adapt your approach and how you interact with people um, in those agencies is different than you would in the team. You can't, you know, yeah, you're ugly, you're stupid, yeah, and, and drive on. You know, th that coking and joking type of thing, it's the, the interactions are different. So having those opportunities, um, I feel like that set me up to be more prepared for interacting with what, you know, I guess normal people um, as, as opposed to kind of the, the teams. Um. So obviously we mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you do um, a lot of work for, or you, you set up, uh, deliver fund. Mm -hmm. um, would you like to explain to us what exactly spurred you into doing that? What deliver fund stands for um, and what good things you're doing at the moment? Okay. So uh, forgive me, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. So deliver fund is a nonprofit that utilizes data and technology in a public-private partnership approach with law enforcement and other authorities to disrupt human trafficking networks, okay? Um, how I got into this, um, while I was doing some contract, the contracting, um, some of the stuff I was doing was somewhat repetitive and frankly, I got bored. Um, so my solution to boredom was to go to grad school, um, which should tell you a little bit about my decision-making process and how flawed it is. Um, <laughs> Grad school is not a great solution to boredom, um, but um, I've always I always wanted to do something for in a in a vein of service. Um, so I actually looked at doing renewable energy and sustainability systems. Wanted wow. to see what I could do globally. Um, I started looking at okay how how could this be applied to the national defense arena, um, and I wasn't having a lot of success in how to conceptualize and translate that into the national defense realm. Um, and then I ha happened to have one class during grad school where I learned about uh, labor abuse and basically trafficking in multinational supply chains. So think some of the large companies, you know, some of these retail companies, they're in the news. Um, and some of the labor abuses, I was like, holy smokes, that's really messed up. Um, so I started thinking about, okay, well, this is pretty interesting. So I started doing a little bit more research. 
Um, and that is actually how I found out about sex trafficking because up to that point, I really didn't know about it. Um, so I found out about human trafficking more broadly during my research. I found a bunch of organizations out there that have similar backgrounds to me that, you know, their stories are, they're going in and rescuing kids and kicking in doors and taking down bad guys. And I'm like, come on, that's about as sexy as you can get. That gets your blood pumping. You're like, sold. I am all in. Um, but I started thinking about it. And when I go back to kind of thinking about, okay, as I'm doing, as I were to do that, what does that look like? Yeah, we rescue a kid. But none of that is in isolation. There's always a network that supports it, right? Yep. So I started thinking, well, that's not very effective. Um, so I kept doing more research, more research, and found Deliver Fund. They've been, a, this was 2017. Um, they've been around since 2014, very small at the time. Um, and when I stumbled across them on the internet, what they were talking about was utilizing more of a network approach um, and data. And I'm like, holy crap, that sounds really familiar, essentially, to what I was doing when I was at um, Support Activity 2, it's just taking that network approach. So I reached out to them. I'm like, hey, here's who I am. Here's, here's some of my background. Um, love to help out however I can. Um, I had a call with the founder, you know, he's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm looking for some of this stuff, talking about open source intelligence. And I'm like, okay, well, I knew how to do some of it, not all of it. It was, I mean, specifically open source and link analysis wasn't my exact um, piece. I was much more on the fusion and kind of the human side. Um, but I'm like, okay, let, let me just kind of kick it around and do a little bit of research and start learning. And then they reached out a few months later, like, hey, are you still interested in the director of operations position? So I'm like, give the right answer. Of course, I'm still interested. I didn't even know it had been advertised because I'm still thinking, you know, I'll, I'll reach out six months down the road. Um, so went through, did some interviews, met the board, and they decided to bring me on. And uh, that really kind of started my journey. Um, and I, I think one of the reasons that I am really excited most about Deliver Fund is because, like I said, it's that network approach. So, yes, it it is sexy to kick in a door and rescue a kid. I mean, you get that immediate high, you get that feel good. You know, those endorphins are kicking, all of that. <clears throat> However, um, it's not very effective, and so it's sexy, but it's not effective. And and I say that because. When you step back and you get out of yourself and how that makes you feel good, and you really look at it, these networks are in fact markets. So if you look at it from that perspective and understanding that traffickers don't view their victims as human beings, they only view them as a commodity. That means a can of soup. So taking that, that perspective, when you look and you go into a store and you take a can of soup off that shelf, to take it home and eat it. You are telling that producer of that soup, make more soup. Well, the same analogy applies to human trafficking. You rescue a victim, now you are telling that trafficker, go recruit a victim to replace the one you lost. Wow. So that's why just rescuing victims is not an effective strategy in the long run. And I'm not saying that a victim should be victimized for one second of their life. 
but we have to accept the fact that there are victims and simply rescuing them to have a trafficker go recruiting new victim, you are now contributing to the problem when you take a longer, longer view of it. <laughs> so the better way to do it is to disrupt the network. So you're, you're going to have demand, whether that's for labor or sex. Um, and so a trafficker is going to try to fill that demand because that's their business model. So if you can remove the trafficker and other key aspects of the network, that network crumbles. That, that equation of supply and demand, you're now decoupling them because you're, you're disrupting the ability for that demand to find the supply of victims. So it's a, it's a more effective approach. It's not the only approach. It can't be done in isolation, but it is at least at what I'll call the tactical level is the most impactful approach. And I say the tactical level because at the end of the day, yes, it is a demand problem. So whether for sex or labor, you know, and that is going to ultimately take a value shift on the part of every person, whether that's in Southeast Asia, the US, UK, it doesn't matter. But realistically shifting values is an intergenerational type of thing. So it's much more strategic, much more long-term um, and it has to be addressed, but that doesn't mean you don't take out networks and disrupt networks in the interim. The other reason that frankly it is more effective is because as you take out a trafficker, most traffickers have multiple victims in their networks. You now have, that, have the opportunity to free multiple victims, but now you've also removed the ability to recruit additional victims. So that's why I say it's more impactful. Um, and then utilizing data and technology. Um, the fact is, whether you like the system or not, you have to work within the system. So, you know, for you or I to go out there, kick in a door, drag a trafficker out on his ass and, you know, beat him within the, an inch of his life and kick him to the cops is not viable. You know, you break countless laws in the process of it. Um, yeah, you might feel good, but that rogue vigilantism, it, it doesn't work. You end up compromising the cases and, you know, you have to accept the fact that, you know, the, the long-term disruption comes from a prosecution. Well, if you taint the cases because you have broken laws in the process, you're contributing to the problem. So utilizing data, providing that data as well as a source to law enforcement so that it can be used in prosecution because now law enforcement has seen it and done it, it is now evidence that is a more effective approach. So that's why I say that the data and technology in a public-private partnership model is the best model. Um, and where do, where do you get the data? What technology? Yeah. Well, the data is out there. You know, internet is a great, great thing. It's, I mean, spread education, improved communications, all of that. But what you put on the internet, it's there. <laughs> so, that means it's available. So, you know, you can use all, just the, just simply Google is an incredible tool on finding these people because, you know, if you, people are gonna sell your data. So you go get, you know, um, a frequent buyer card to your favorite pizza joint. That pizza joint wants to make additional money instead of just off of you, they're gonna sell your data to a marketing company. 
Yep. That marketing company is going to target ads to you for, hey, you want a Hawaiian pizza. Okay, you're seeing that. Well, guess what? That data is out there and then it can be attributed back to you. Okay, well, get enough pieces of data. So you're on if you're a trafficker on and you're on Instagram and you're showing, you know, flashing all this money, talking about, you know, your hose, your stable, this, that, or that, you are now telling us that, yeah, hey, you're likely a trafficker. And what's your what's your user ID? Okay. Humans are creatures of habit. They don't really change their their IDs that often. So if you if you think back, you know, your username on multiple different accounts is probably either the same or within one alphanumeric character of one another for the most Think part. about it. Yeah, you're quite right. right? Yeah. Creatures of habit. Yeah. That is all stuff that can be exploited because if I see, you know, <clears throat> Joe Trafficker um, is my uh, username on Instagram. And then, you know, Joe Trafficker123 at gmail.com is an email address tied to, you know, this pizza card. Okay, well, there's an indicator there that this might be the same person. Now you start tying these pieces of data together and pretty soon you find out, yeah, hey, this person is the same person. And, oh, simple open source through tax records. They live here or lived here. Hey, here's their phone number. Um, yeah, oh, they also, this email address that is tied here, it's not tied to this Instagram account, but it's tied to this other Instagram account. So now you're pulling in multiple different social media accounts. Um, and so that that's really how it gets done. It's just open, exploiting open source. Um, people love to share on on social media, you know? Wow, um, that, that sounds, it almost sounds like you don't need uh, a warrant or need to do a deep dive. You almost need to just look for a certain few amount of breadcrumbs and bang, you're on the trail. So as a private organization, that's absolutely correct. I mean, yeah. don't do any hacking. We don't, you know, do anything that could violate any laws. <clears throat> it's all open source. What you put out there, okay, hey, it's in the public arena. It's in the public sphere. I can take that and yeah. I can tie it with other stuff. There are there are things that only law enforcement can get that do require a warrant or a subpoena, in which case, you know, this data that we give them can aid them in their probable cause for getting that information, which, you know, that can be, you know, more telling, right? Because there's certain records, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get called data records. As much as I would love to get them, I can't get that sort of sort of stuff. But I can give law enforcement enough stuff that they can go make a request for those call data records to aid in their case. Is this um, something that is done globally or are you looking at localized? When I say localized, uh, I'm saying America as a continent or do you are you looking at this as a, a global issue through Deliver From? Human trafficking is a global issue. Um, there's, you know, outside of Antarctica, there's probably no country that is immune from it. Um, Deliver Fund started off focusing on the United States. Um, we developed, improved the model of how we do it there. Um, and we are now expanding globally. So we, we have a team that's starting in Poland and we're focusing on really Europe first, um, developing our partnerships there. Um, recently, we're uh, working with Interpol and uh, you know, myself, um, Elisa Jaborzik and Tamia Nagy were just named to the Interpol's Human Trafficking Experts Group. So 
we're working in that arena because traffickers move. They there are no geopolitical boundaries to which they are held. Right? They're not. They're not just going to be in Eastern uh, Eastern European country X. They're not just going to be in Western Europe. And by example of that, um, you know, Russia invades Ukraine, caused a mass um, exodus of people. Yeah. Lots of refugees who are extremely vulnerable to trafficking, both sex and labor. Um, so we actually did, conducted a project to identify if trafficking was taking place and how it was taking place with respect to those refugees. And in the span of 42 days, we were able to identify 10 cases and build those out where, and in, in this case, it is predominantly women and children because those, most of the men have to stay and fight. Um, 10 cases in 42 days mapped out, um, exploiting those who are, are extremely vulnerable and arguably more vulnerable than others. Um, and we, we saw it. We saw that traffickers were recruiting over Facebook and other social media platforms while people were still in Ukraine. Then they get across the border. They're picked up under the auspices of, oh, hey, yeah, you're going to stay with us. We're going to provide you shelter and provide you a job. And then suddenly we see them being advertised for sex, maybe initially in Poland. And then we're seeing them further advertised where the demand is, which frankly is in the Western European countries yeah. um, or outside of Europe as well. Um, so we, we've seen that and we've seen it with labor as well. Oh yeah, I'll give you a job. Well, they get in there and then suddenly they are locked down. Their, their passports are taken. Um, they have no support network um, and they are stuck cleaning somebody's house with no money um, and are told that, you know, if they try to leave, then, you know, their kid's going to be harmed or something like that. I, I was going to ask you, um, obviously, with you saying that you um, started something in Poland, was that was that strategic, knowing that there would be a mass exodus of people from Ukraine, or was that something you already had in place? No, it wasn't anything we had in place. Um, we worked with an intergovernmental, uh, an intergovernmental body slash uh, NGO who requested us to help out on, on that front. And we chose Poland because as we looked at the data, Poland was absorbing the majority of the refugees as opposed to the, the other border countries, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Moldova. Um, so that's why we, we chose that. Um, and then frankly, we also just, we have people who have cultural and linguistic in Poland. Um, so there was connection. So those were the factors that drove us to really focus on Poland initially. Um, yeah. So it was scale of the problem because of all the people as well as having the expertise. Is that something that um, people can get involved with? Is that something that people can donate towards? Uh, is there a, a charity basis that we can, you know, send money to help? Yes. So um, for our international operations, our global operations, um, Deliver Fund Global Operations is what it's called. Um, www.deliverfundglobal.org um, is the website. Um, and then, yeah, absolutely donating towards that is hugely key because that allows us to hire our analysts that do all the digging to generate those reports. It allows us to utilize, to purchase some of the technology um, that we can use to really map out a lot of this stuff and provide it to law enforcement. Um, so that law enforcement can take the action. Um, you know, we're, we're, you know, 
we call ourselves shooters with computers because that, that's what we are. I mean, we're, we're sitting behind computer, we're computer nerds now. Um, and we let, we let law enforcement be the door kickers. We let them be the, the really the, the action arm, if you will, because that's appropriate. That is the system. And again, whether you agree with it or not, you know, you have to work within the system. And if you're not working to improve the system, then you're just dead weight. So that, that's kind of our approaches to work within the system and improve it. Um, but yes, donations are absolutely key. Um, and the fact is those donations ha have impact orders of magnitude greater than just that financial piece, right? Because that allows us to then find a potential victim, map out the network, and because they've moved from Poland to Germany and then to the UK, for instance, okay, now we have to get the right partners. You're, you're not just talking like different jurisdictions within a country. You're talking about different countries that despite being in the European Union, they have different laws, right? Yeah. So we have to be able to find the appropriate partners to tie all of that together so that a successful investigation and prosecution can be done. So you have a massive, massive impact. And as those partnerships grow, so do so does the impact, right? I would imagine that takes a lot of time to build that uh, reputation as um, as an organization to be able to contact these multiple agencies and be able to relay the information between each other. It, it does. Um, you know, <clears throat> so the, the biggest reason we're able to do it is because of integrity. Um, that is one of our absolute foundational principles. Um, we don't sacrifice integrity at any point. Um, if we screw up, we, we say, yeah, hey, we missed that piece. Um, and the reason for that is because there's nobody perfect. Um, we don't really miss that much, to be frank, and I'm not patting ourselves on the back. It just is what it is. We have very, very skilled people. Um, but always being honest so that we don't sacrifice the trust. Um, you know, you know, Elisa Jaborzik, um, you know, if you look, look her up on LinkedIn or Instagram, um, you know, we've got the Global Guardians Against Evil. Um, that's another way that people can get involved and potentially leverage their skill set to, to assist as well. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll put all links to that at the bottom of the video yeah. or, or on the podcast on, on Spotify. You seem yeah. incredibly um, passionate about this, very settled in this work, obviously, with your background. Do you feel that this is where your life was leading to through all the training, through all your interests through the SEAL teams, do you think this is where your life was coming to purposefully? So, you know, I mentioned at the outset, I've always had a call to service. Yeah. Um, what that looks like, I mean, even going back to when I was in the Boy Scouts. So what a call to service, that, that can mean so many things. But when I reflect what it has always been about, um, in, at least in some component, has been about improving the human condition. Um, you know, and, and I, I say that because, yes, I wanted to serve my nation. I wanted to be SEAL. You know, certainly there was the young ego component of that. Um, but there was also about, OK, hey, how can I improve things? And, and I saw that going back to my very early days. We were in Peru and I saw a shanty town where, you know, the walls were kind of tin and tires and there was some loose rusted tin on the roof with rivulets of gray, dirty water running down the street. I mean, poverty like you couldn't believe. Um, and it, it came down to, okay, well, hey, what are we doing here when we're training this particular unit? 
Well, we're training them how to provide essentially stability inside their country. Well, if you provide stability inside the country, that allows resources to be ultimately long-term developed to hopefully address some of those other issues. Um, so yeah, I mean, to a degree, everything has kind of led to this. Um, certainly, you know, those last five years of having that approach to intelligence and operations fusion, disrupting illicit networks, um, it's not very it's not very common out there. So um, yeah, it definitely led here. You know, I mean, and yeah, it, it, it's I mean, the sleep well at night factor is off the charts because there is no terrorist versus freedom fighter debate here. I mean, you're either exploiting people for money or you're not. It, it's very binary in that respect. With uh, leaving such a tight knit environment, leaving the teams, what advice would you give to somebody who's perhaps leaving that sort of environment now or perhaps is planning to leave that environment soon? What advice would you give them leaving that tight-knit community? So one I would say is never stop learning. Um, it, utilize the skill set and knowledge that you've obtained up to this point as a starting point, but don't let it be your end point. So continue to learn, continue to develop. Um, Frankly, when we start talking about PTS and some of the TBI stuff, yeah, um, and where it leads to veteran suicide, um, just talk to somebody. <laughs> Don't hold it in. You know, you're you're not a tough guy or girl because you're not burdening somebody else. Um, it, it things get better. There are solutions. So. Um, don't try to be an island and be a you know a tough guy or girl to yourself. Um, utilize, reach out to your friends, reach out to your networks, and let them know you're struggling because there's lots of resources. And frankly, just talking to somebody oftentimes changes that perspective and can make yeah. a huge difference. You know, I mean, <clears throat> you only get one death, but you have multiple opportunities to impact people's lives close to you and outside of your immediate circle. So. I would say talk to people and don't let your experience and knowledge be an endpoint, but a starting point for the future. Uh, speaking of future, what does the, the future hold for yourself? Where do you see yourself going uh, with? Oh, God. Um, you know, all I have to do is change the world. Um, so, <laughs> you know, sm small goals. Um, <laughs> small goal, change the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, I, I don't really know, man. It uh, you know, I, I definitely want to. I do. I do want to change the world. I, I want to make a, a meaningful impact on the world. Leave it better than where I found it in some way, shape, or form. However, I go about doing that, you know, I, I don't know yet. You know, I'm going to continue to do what I can where I can. Um, try to try to live right. Um, you know, I am extremely fortunate. You know, to be here today. You know, um, better men than me, better women than me are not here today. So, you know, if I am here.